Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast, in association with Retail Focus Magazine. Brought to you by Visual Thinking, inspiring retail performance. Hello, and welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. I'm Ben Bland. Grocery retail is going through a period of unprecedented change, evolving shopper habits, ongoing cost pressures, increased competition, and further consolidation. Tesco hopes that its new concept, Jax, will tackle the rise of the discounters like Aldi and Lidl. Meanwhile, the proposed merger between Sainsbury's and Asda is awaiting the outcome of an investigation by the Competition and Markets Authority. Challenges exist, but so do opportunities. Here with me to discuss them in more detail are Carl McKeever, the founder and managing director of Visual Thinking, Sarah Fairhurst, the design director at DL and Powell, and Michael Heenew, the joint managing director at M Worldwide. So let's begin. Is the concept of the supermarket in the UK broken? And if so, how do we fix it? Carl? So I wouldn't say it's broken, but I think like many retailers in different market sectors, for a long time their businesses were pretty stagnant and that there was one model. So whether you were a clothing retailer or a home retailer, the consumer could typically expect the same under a different brand name. But of course, in supermarkets now, there are many different types of model. And I think the challenge is for a business to decide which of those models does it want to fit within, or if it's creating a new one, how to do that quickly and effectively. Sarah? I completely agree um, with Carl. I think the concepts of the supermarket in the UK isn't broken, um, but I think that retail is in flux and there's big changes um, in what the customer expects from retail spaces today um, and people uh, have different expectations of brands. So I think that supermarkets need to address that. So they need to address the balance of um, experience and look at what they can offer that uh, online can't offer. Michael? I definitely think it's it's definitely not broken, but I do think that um, also the idea of um, one size fits all is is never going to be the same again. So I think we've got um, a story now where we have local pressures, and I think you'll have a um, an idea that uh, if you take two different types of customer bases, where we have the emerging customer, which is the younger demographic much more demanding, much more sort of fickle and less loyal and wanting to actually sort of get more out of a supermarket experience every day in all kinds of ways in terms of the channel uh, integration. But then we also can't lose sight of the fact that we have a value-driven model requirement. So if we've got young families, we've got people who are working to a budget, we still need to let, uh, sort of be sure that those people are catered for. So we've got those people who do still want to do the weekly shop. You know, it's a, it's, it's, I think there's both coming through and, and, and I, I can see retailers having to, you know, having to sort of stretch their line of their proposition to sort of accommodate both because it's going to be, it's, it's, you know, we're going through that period of massive migration. With that in mind, can single supermarket brands be all things to all people or do you think it needs a divergence even more than there is already? I, I, my feeling is that um, a lot of the big players can't choose one lane. They're going to have to work with both. Now, that can be something which they might think they can sort of dial up and dial down on a sort of a format basis. But I think it's too hard for them to say, we're just going to be catering for this young demographic. There's too many people out there who need the value shop. 
and vice versa. You know, we can't sit back and just accept that the world's going to be the same and the big shop on a Thursday evening is going to happen forever. It's not. Mm. I, I, I partly agree with that. And I, I, I also think, though, that there's a case for almost arguing that the complete opposite. Because I think if you look at someone like the discounters, which have come in, Lidl and Audi have got one thing in common and that they have essentially one format. Uh, typically, smaller stores are very uh, edited uh, assortment and inventory. And those stores are chosen very carefully in terms of the local demographic, whether that's a particular area, which is for neighbourhoods, or whether that's infilling with the site within a city which is not well served. So I think in those situations, what those brands are demonstrating is that you actually don't have to choose multiple lanes, is that you can actually just be very accomplished in a single lane and actually drive very hard to get the results that you want. I think the problem is for those brands which are more established, so what we would typically described as the big four here in the UK, where they have a very mixed estate and they have mixed locations and mixed demographic and they have mixed formats. And in some ways, they've contributed to their own woes because by growing hard at different points in time, where they've either wanted to have city centre sites, out-of-town sites, retail park sites, and now even motorway service sites, in many ways, they've created their own difficulties um, within their own history. So I think, you know, simplification in some ways is what the Germans teach us. And simplification is what many big businesses are always striving to do. But of course, that comes at a cost. Often it means closing sites, going for less market share, going for smaller stores, so that you can focus on one format alone. Sarah, do you see that UK supermarkets are responding to that challenge as effectively as they should? That that idea of simplification and the appeal it clearly has to customers? I don't think so. I don't think currently the UK supermarkets are doing enough when you look at some of our um, competitors. So if you look at Europe, um, I think they're a step ahead of the UK. In what way? Just in terms of innovation, I think in terms of experiences um, within the supermarket spaces, particularly if you look as far as places like Seoul and Tokyo, some of those far east um, eastern supermarkets, I think they're actually innovating faster. They're creating better experiential spaces um, for their supermarkets than we are currently experiencing here in the UK. And I think that that's possibly because there's more differentiation, um, more of a defined purpose maybe for those for those brands. You all talk about the experience. Of, of shopping. Granted, sometimes you'll think on a on a weekend off, I'm going to treat myself, I'm going to go shopping and buy a pair of shoes or a new jacket or something. Do people really think of supermarket shopping in that same way? Does anyone really think, I want to go to the supermarket, do my grocery shop, and I want it to feel like an experience? Uh, well, you, you, you know, you've answered your own question there. By the way, you framed it. I think the uh, the truth is people don't. There is still a uh, there is still sort of an every every week task nature to some of this. Um, but that said, as Carl touched on there about the sort of the legacy of the current estate, um, there's an opportunity which I think a lot of the UK grocers are working on to create more um, experiences in their spaces because they have to, because they've got these third party spaces, which they're starting to sort of really do so much more with. And they are, they've got a legacy where they have to sort of fill that space and create more of an event. So it will have a, a really good cafe. It will have other third-party um, opportunities. So, for example, Sainsbury's with the Argos and the Habitat stories. Um, you know, they are things which will drive footfall and they create more of an experience, which will, which will is more of an event. 
Sarah? Just to pick up on the point of experience, I think that um, the growth of online shopping obviously has had a huge impact on supermarkets and um, the convenience element that supermarkets used to own um, has now been taken over by online. So you can shop so easily every week and do your grocery shop without ever going to a supermarket. And I think what the retailers then need to look at is how they drive footfall to their stores again. So what can they offer um, that's an experience? Um, As Michael was saying, is that an Argos? Is it a third-party retailer? is it a cafe? Um, is there an opportunity for more, for an increased uh, or better restaurant offer within our UK supermarkets as well um, to give a reason to drive footfall again? Um, because they can't just own that convenience thing in the space in the physical spaces themselves. And I think in many ways, the elephant in the room here is actually do some of the big retailers just have too much physical retail space? And instead of, in a sense, trying to uh, repopulate that space with third party brands, Tesco introduced a next store into one of its supermarkets. Is there a need for another next store within a Tesco? Who knows? The question is, do Tesco need as much physical space as they have when they can have all of that online space as well for that extended catalogue? So I think we shouldn't be afraid to ask some big questions here. And I think, you know, part of that is, is just do we have too much grocery space when so much of that space now is also being taken up by physical delivery traffic on Britain's roads? So if there is surplus space within supermarkets, what should they do with it? Or should they be trying to get rid of it and shrink the size of their stores? Well, I would say that um, I I completely see where you're coming from, Carl, in terms of the uh, in a brave new world, on a clean slate, I can guarantee that every CEO on the big four would never have the same estate they have today. They would um, have a much cleaner, simpler story. Um, but the reality today is that they have got this legacy estate and they have to make it work. They, and that's where we're seeing innovation and ideas and creative solutions to sort of work with that space because that's what they need to do. And they have to, and at least for the next sort of five to 10 years, while they hang on to these sort of large formats, they've got to um, make them work and, and sweat the asset. Sarah, have you seen any good examples of supermarkets using excess space to really good effect? I would go back to my Far East uh, earlier references because I think that um, in terms of useful um benefits for the community, they're answering that pretty well. Um, I've seen uh, supermarkets that then have uh, creches, um, that have good restaurants, they have cookery schools, done in a way that benefits the community. So they don't feel like um, superfluous kind of add-ons that don't really benefit. I think they're there to um, enhance the brand, they're there to help drive that purpose, but they're there to benefit the community and they're helpful services. How far can they take that concept, Michael? Well, the story is it's not a new story. You know, there's you know, we've seen dry cleaning, we've seen pharmacies, we've seen shoe repairs, banks even in um in large format stores for quite some time. So they're just extending that narrative. Um but I do think there is a convenience factor which to some shoppers that's that's worth a that's worth a trip out. And it does add differentiation to their discounter competitors. And just to sort of dial it down a bit from the large format to smaller format supermarkets. We should also not lose sight of the fact that from a community perspective, something like a post office in a small cooperative actually adds real value to a smaller community where they wouldn't have that sort of facility. So having a third party in that sense um, adds viability to a local community, you know, makes it easier to live there. So there is... There is a sort of there's a there's a sort of a social responsibility opportunity which the um, supermarkets are taking, and I think um, that that can only be good for the customer as well. 
That said, Carl, you expressed some doubts about whether it was the right thing for Tesco to have this idea of the next concession in store. What, what made you say that? Well, I think it's really more just a case of, um, have, we, have we really already got enough of these other outlets already? And to take um, Sarah's point is, are there more uh, social uses that some of those excess spaces could be put for? So yes, I think there is already evidence in the Far East and, and actually many places around the world. Mexico is a good example of this, where there's a lot of community-based types of service offers which are brought in, be that in terms of dentistry, vets practices, those kinds of things which also come in alongside a supermarket. But I guess really what I'm saying is the supermarket in many ways should be and could be a hub of the community. Um, it's a place where we all absolutely have to use that for our daily essentials. And yes, there is also a time and place where we have an extended shop where we're open to buying other categories. But I think that the real big question that we should ask here is, do we just have too much floor space within supermarkets? And what is the optimal size store that's needed to actually deliver a good shop well? Is there a reputational risk to supermarkets to trying to provide all those services to people under one roof? Because if, say, one of the big four does that, and then as a result, the local post office closes, the local pharmacy closes, the local vets has to close, people are going to have a feeling of resentment because they have lost what is their true local community retail provision, haven't they? Yeah, I guess what I'm talking about is, is again, using imagination, what more could supermarkets do in terms of actually supporting the local community? Now, what might be a better combination, could you imagine, than actually opening some of that excess car parking space to an organic market, perhaps one weekend a month, so that there actually becomes a complementarity of those relationships um, where local producers could actually sell fresh fruit and vegetables to supermarket shoppers who who in turn go on to fulfil the rest of their shopping list in store. So I don't think the two worlds have to exist completely separately. There can be a kind of a mutuality in their existence here. And I think in terms of their broader role, supermarkets are also part of the stewardship of our communities. And I think it's great to bring in um, shops and stores and services which are, in a sense, a non-competitive threat. But I think the consumers might also feel a bit more favourably towards supermarkets if they also felt that they were also supporting the little guys better too i think the um the whole the whole idea of complementary is is a good one um i know that uh, scott mid in in scotland uh, the cooperative in scotland for example they have a very good um range of bakers for example which are all local artisan bakers regional bakers so from the east to the west and north of the country but that drives a huge amount of loyalty from the scottish nationalist sort of customer he just really appreciates the fact that their cooperative is getting behind their local bakers of course there are there are sort of decisions to be made about how how about their own product how about their own bread and bakery product that's been compromised you could argue but they've sort of handed that over to the the bakers and um, they've succeeded because they've got better footfall as a result I think part of the problem here is as a mainstream grocer your customer base is such a broad church that you can't please everyone all of the time uh, if you take one particular initiative or stance there's a good chance that you're going to alienate another portion of your audience so it's very very hard not to, in a sense, almost end up treading such a middle ground and almost being so vanilla, to put it into, uh, I guess, other terms, that you end up not differentiating and not having a distinctive offer is where you'll end up. On that point, supermarkets have always prided themselves on being the place to go to get fresh fruit and veg. It's the first thing you see when you walk in. Do you think we'll ever see a time where they do away with that, that they move away from that traditional 
selling point? Or is that a key part of the supermarket model? Well, for me, the, the fresh is, um, is just an absolute sort of vital part, part of that sort of supermarket experience. And I, th- I think retailers still today really hang their hat on it. And, um, and I think it's really important. I think fresh for many customers, not all customers, for many customers um, signifies uh, certain sort of quality standards. And it's the way they judge and sort of have that sort of landing experience as they enter the store. So I think that um, going forward, I can see it being a major part of the story. But as I touched on, I don't think it's a driver for every customer. Um, I think where you've got um, sort of value-driven customers, actually the idea of fresh, and that could be, I'm not just talking about fruit and veg, I'm talking about fresh meat, fresh fish. Um, that's, that's, a hot, that's expensive to some people. And, you know, it's, uh, it's an issue that we have that um, more value-driven customers are buying sort of ready-made meals, uh, pre, you know, sort of very much uh, pre-prepared foods because it's a cheaper, bulkier solution for feeding a family. And I think that's something which I think uh, retailers have an obligation to try and work and sort of try to resolve as much as we got the sugar tax. We need to sort of think about actually making fresh uh, more palatable financially to um, cash-strapped families. For me, part of the answer, Ben, is is really about how the supermarkets become even bolder and even more distinctive in terms of their individual offers. So I think part of the challenge is, is for the very large supermarket groups that have got multi-formatted businesses, inevitably there's a certain amount of blurring of the lines and crossing over between you know format to format. I actually believe that what they should be doing is being even braver in taking those formats to a sharper edge. So that actually, if there is a a particular format within that group, which is about value, that it really should underpin value in everything that it does. And similarly, if there is another format within that group, and it could possibly even live under the same brand name or derivative of that brand name, is that if it's about the experience, then that particular format in the right locations with the right demographics should all be about experience. I think part of the problem that we have is that they do essentially operate a one-size-fits-all with about a 10 to 20% worth of differentiation around the edges, which is what they will call format. So this blurring of the lines doesn't really satisfy anyone well because, you know, it doesn't matter whether you walk into a big Sainsbury's, a small Tesco, a medium-sized Waitrose, they largely offer a version of the same thing. You'll get a slight amplification of one or other of the features, depending on when you are. But for the consumer, you don't really get something unique and distinctive each time. Sarah, what do you think? I think it's interesting to look out of sector um, to this question. So fresh produce, um, I think... Supermarkets tend to innovate and tend to lead um, and then others copy. I think what we're seeing is other sectors taking learnings from that supermarket kind of mentality um, and that fresh produce. So if you use Lush as an example, um, their flagship stores are based all around this food market and the idea of colour and freshness and expression and playfulness. And actually, I think when you look um, across the beauty sector, there's some really interesting examples of this sort of fresh produce idea. And actually, they're doing a better job sometimes than some of the supermarkets are at sort of of displaying freshness and encouraging customers to test and try and to play. And I think that there's learnings from out-of-sector um, brands and retailers that supermarkets could look to to actually bring that freshness back in. Um, it's something that they probably started and led, but actually could um, sort of reinvigorate and innovate again in that freshness and, and playfulness. I think you're absolutely right, Sarah. And I think for me, there's an outstanding example of a retailer, which whilst not uh, yet here in the UK is, is tipped to be here very soon, a crossover business between a restaurant come supermarket concept 
Italy is interesting in as much the concept itself is more of a food service retailer. So it's part a place to buy, but it's also a place to eat. And its stores are a combination of uh, shopping come restaurant experiences. But of course, what's really interesting about that is that Italy have created a really distinctive proposition and one that stands on its own. Now, for me, any of the big supermarket brands in the, we have in the UK could have mimicked that or come up with a version of their own, which was far truer to actually selling and serving and creating and cooking and sharing of food experiences rather than just actually packing them up and sticking them in a carrier bag. I would say that what's interesting also about the definition of fresh um, touches on some of the things that Italy would do as well, which is my, um, I could say, I could describe it as freshly prepared because I think the sort of that will also uh, appeal to a younger demographic. And many of the sort of younger shoppers we're seeing are having a sort of an element of freshly prepared, which they see as permissible cheating to sort of cooking from scratch. So some, maybe, maybe it's something marinated, something sort of semi-prepared, uh, and that will allow them to take it back home, cook for 30 minutes, they've got a meal they've cooked from scratch. You've described my cooking habits precisely, Michael. It's, it's scary how close that is, Carl. And of course, what's fascinating about Italy, it absolutely does not... Um, trade its proposition on price. It trades on quality and an experience and a social experience at that. So I think when so many of our competitive supermarket brands literally are trading blows on a penny here and a penny on there and trying to, in a sense, win on a price-driven approach, Italy doesn't even enter into that game. It's selling quality and it's selling experience. And that's what gives it its distinctive edge. Sarah? I think what we're talking about here is um, retail theatre. And so when you look at the likes of Italy, it's an experience, um, going back to that word. I think that supermarkets can learn a lot from that fresh abundance, um, the smells, the senses, all of those things you can't deliver online. And so what we're looking at here is what can supermarkets offer that they can't offer online and how to differentiate those two things. And again, drive footfall to the space itself uh, rather than just purely convenience. And I think uh, actually to that point as well, the, the the idea of connectivity, because I'm really interested in the way that uh, these other channels should be connecting back to the bricks and mortar. So if, for example, if you look at um, a channel twistedfood.co.uk, which is a just a food prep channel, um, Jamie Bolding, I think it's a really interesting idea that you can sort of go online, look at the food. It's really easy to prepare. He's done an experimentation where he's done a pop-up a restaurant in London. And so people are able to go online, watch the food being prepared and actually order it and have it delivered. Now, there's no reason why we couldn't also see that theatre happening in the actual uh, supermarkets. And that would, again, drive footfall to that space um, to create a better experience. So it's, it's actually sort of trying to have that connectivity across all these channels to drive more footfall into store. All of the things you've described sound very enticing and enjoyable. But if you were going to roll it out across your entire store estate, that's going to be a significant overhead. How do you persuade people within a big organisation like one of the big four supermarkets that this is something that's worth doing? I think the answer to that question is simply online. Uh, 
online retailing and with the likes of Amazon entering the fray in terms of now delivering not just groceries but fresh, they've rewritten the cost-based model anyway and are demonstrating that actually you can still be very, very profitable but from a much lower cost base. So for the stores to compete with online, they're going to have to do things differently. But of course, what they're having to uh, face the dual challenge of is running a shop and also running the experience at the same time. And inevitably, I think that is going to have to force people's hand even harder to create ever more distinctive experiences. And I think it's entirely possible that you can have the same brand with even clearer separations in terms of its format. So it's, for me, very easy to think that you can have an experiential version of Supermarket A and that you can have a discount version of Supermarket A that can cohabit side by side and often in the same city. But it's having clarity and conviction about its delivery that will really count. For me, I think building on your point, it's about identifying the purpose of each space. So Nike Town is probably the best example that I can think of um, where Nike Town itself exists. Its purpose exists to be a brand space. So it's selling brands to customers. But not all Nike stores have that same um, experience to them. So And then they sell through third-party retailers as well. So it's a clearly defined format strategy and purpose for each of those outlets. Um, I think supermarkets could take learnings from that, um, have experiential flagship uh, spaces and then have, like you said, the discount spaces too. So it's catering for, for everyone. We all know that uh, it's, you know, it's a bad time to be boring is, is the truth. And they've got to really face into that fact. They've got to look at their product ranges, their assortments in store. They've got to remove the commodities, which down the line will be delivered on the same day by Amazon for probably less money. And they've got to fill that space. And so... It's it's a real they are it's a really tough time I think for them in terms of future thinking how it's going to move but they have to face into the fact that uh, there is uh, a need to create more uh, interest and rhythm to a space that will actually drive that footfall back in there. All the the examples that that the three of you have given and, and described are things designed to keep people in store for longer. When you look at the concept of the Amazon Go store, does that not suggest that people want their experience in store to be as quick as possible, not to linger, but to, to get in, get out, without even queuing, that everything will be automatically built and they just walk out with the store, bag full of groceries. How much of a market disruptor do you think that Amazon Go model is going to be? I think it entirely depends on how it's rolled out. What works within this particular store, it's in a metro environment within a particular city demographic, and therefore it suits the shopper need. You can have every kind of different shopper need depending on the location. You know, one of the biggest footfall drivers into a supermarket in the morning could in fact be the coffee shop that actually brings mums in together when they've still got their youngest child having dropped off the other kids to school. So of course there is no silver bullet formula to getting this right but it's really about the people that run the supermarkets being very clear of the formats, very clear of the demographics and making sure that their location planning is absolutely tuned in right to the local community. Sarah? I think people crave spending time with people and convenience is one element of our um, lives. It's one thing that we're looking for, but we also want to spend time together. And I think that spaces where people can come together, as you're illustrating, Carl, with having coffee um, together in the mornings, I think that um, there's always a role to play for uh, the physical space in bringing people together, spending time together and offering something over and above just a simple convenience, a simple transaction. Just on a personal note, what one thing makes each of you choose one supermarket over another? 
What what is the 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 major factor in your choice of where to to get your groceries? For me, it's easy. It's about whichever of the supermarkets is nearest to me at my point of need. So if you'd have asked me that question maybe 10 years ago, I might have said loyalty to a particular brand where I could be confident of its quality. Maybe there were some particular perks of shopping there. Maybe it was a loyalty scheme that might have driven a particular choice where there was multiple choices together. For me these days, it's purely about the convenience of location. I'm not even necessarily that price sensitive in those locations because I also understand how fiercely competitive the supermarkets themselves slug it out to try and have the lowest prices. So I think if you shop smart, but if you shop where you need to be and where you actually are, that's for me is what drives it. Michael? Yeah, I think my two criteria, I suppose, is location, which is a convenience factor, um, and size of store as well, because I don't I don't want to be walking around 10,000 square feet anymore. And I think that's pretty much the case for 90% of the population. Um, so I think uh, getting around the store quickly and uh, getting a convenience because it's a local, a local store yeah, are my two criteria. And Sarah? Similar to what uh, both Carl and Michael have both said, um, I'd just add that I feel like we make choices uh, based on what our values are as a person. So I think um, convenience, definitely, location, definitely, but also a brand that you feel like you can align with, maybe, um, Mm -hmm. just to add to that. And if there was anything I'd add to it, Ben, I would say that it's actually about service. So for me, if I felt that a particular store offered superior service, and that meant people who were courteous, friendly, were able to answer questions, were able to take me to the goods in store, had time for me, that absolutely would uh, win out over any of what I might call the frippery of all of the icing on the cake stuff. Well, I think the the whole idea of staff and staffing is a a massive question, which we could um, spend a whole bag of time about, because I think staff wage costs, the rising pressures on running a store in that sense are, um, are contradictory to the fact that, they, that retailers need to invest in staff. They need to have more uh, more bodies on the shop floor. They need to be able to have better bodies on the shop floor in terms of their staff development training needs. So it's a really hard space they're in because, um, it, as you say, I think that would be a criteria for me to see plenty of people that you can ask for information and you get a decent response and to have not have to queue if you don't, if you don't fancy it. Then I think that, um, that, that those things, are, that part of the story is really important. Do you think that the cost of staffing and having a large presence on the supermarket aisles is worth the added cost. For me, it doesn't necessarily have to be a large presence, but it just has to be an effective one. So I think, you know, some of this is hard to uh, almost regulate. And inevitably, it will come down to other factors, such as culture within the company, what kind of training and development programs are active, and, and even down to the kind of the people which are employed and what skills they've been employed upon. But for me, it's not about quantity of staff, but it's about the quality of those interactions. And to take Sarah's point, one of the, the, the real differentiators in terms of why shop online versus why shop in store. I think, you know, it's pretty well understood that most customers don't get too excited about going grocery shopping. But what they will do is recognise great service, where they felt valued, where they were respected and thanked for their time. I mean, I I can't remember how many checkouts I've been through recently where you don't even get a please and a thank you. And actually, the simple stuff, the basics really do matter. There was a report out by a company called Cudrini, and they cited four major reasons for uh, complaints. Out, out of those four, three were about staff. So you had 57% uh, frustrated by queuing, obviously lack of staff. 
44% rude and unhelpful staff and 39% lack of available staff. They were, that's out of their, uh, sort of their top four complaints. So it is still there, which is amazing, you'd say, in the current climate that you're still finding that across the board there's a general dissatisfaction with quality of staff. What's really interesting is that universally you said that the overriding factor for you is location and convenience. If I was sitting here as a supermarket owner, I would be thinking the route to success is open as many stores in as many places as possible. That will secure my future. Is it as simple as that? Uh, It certainly seemed that way, I think, a few years ago. And I think when we were all uh, imagining that people would be happy to drive to all of these places, load up their car as frequently as possible. But of course, we're living in a changing world. Um, There are different pressures on transport, different pressures on time, on the economics of shopping. But of course, you know, retailers, when they're building sites, are locked into long periods of time in terms of leases and payback on their developments. So I think, you know, perhaps what we should be entering into is is an age where perhaps some of these things are a little bit more nimble and that we can actually be looking at a supermarket as saying, well, actually, if it's here as 10 years in this location, great. But actually, if we extend to 15, even better. I think it's tricky to answer that with one single point of view. I think, obviously, depending on where you live, um, that's going to really drive whether you have a destination supermarket of choice that you go out of your way to or whether you walk to or whether you drive to. It's very much going to depend on your local circumstances, I think. Um, what's really interesting is that Ocado is UK's large, is the UK's largest supermarket um, and they have no physical presence. So I think it's a slight counter-argument to just put as many stores as possible on as many different high streets as possible. The fact that Ocado have that amazing um, growth and that influence on that sector um, says that there's there's more to it than just putting stores in every on every corner. I think there's a there's definitely a um, a point you make, and I, I accept it that uh, you know we talk about location and convenience as primary uh, drivers, um, and I think that's the same for a lot of customers. Um, but I think you know we also can't lose sight of the fact that we're in a sort of a uh, a capitalist market and there are you know sort of four brands out there who are fighting a pitch battle for survival in many ways and the fifth one being amazon or maybe the sixth is is Ocado. you know there is there is all kinds of really sort of um, survival sort of games going on here and i think it's the sort of the the the, the point we're trying to make i think collectively is the retailers are going to have to work really hard and it's going to be small incremental differences which will be the difference and will drive some sort of loyalty But for me, I wouldn't say it's about sort of having uh, a store in every corner, because I think if you did that, you'd be taking out um, the the whole sort of larger footprints, which the reality is we're not going to lose those. We're going to have to see those evolve. um, And you'd see you'd be moving into much more of a convenient story, which, of course, is where the footfall is is going to. But as I say, the reality today is that there are these large formats out there and they're not going to go away just at the moment. And I think if we have to believe that um, uh, consumers choose supermarkets for reasons other than convenience and location alone, and I genuinely do believe that they do, there's a mixed uh, dynamic there that's going on. Sarah's mentioned before, one of the reasons people choose stores specifically is because of its brand. I think what we should expect to see is the brands becoming even clearer in terms of some of their particular stances. And I think that that is where there is a genuine opportunity to get new market share. So I think by actually aligning yourself to a particular set of ethics and values and reaching out to those customers in a very strident way, I think that's where there is an opportunity to really create some clear blue sky in terms of you and the nearest competitor. 
I think as we're seeing the sort of the sort of the younger demographics coming through, the 25, 35s, they are one of their big drivers is an ethical perspective, much more in that sense. Not so much a loyalty, or they're quite fickle, as I mentioned earlier, but the the idea of people who sort of stand for certain things and beliefs, I think, will be respected, and I think you'll get good loyalty as a result of that. But I think the point is that consumers are not uh, blind and not sheep-like and will just not just follow with whatever this uh, supermarkets want to say is that people ask questions and people are well informed and I think that the more the brands can do to actually make their position and their stance and their propositions even clearer can only be a good thing. I think Iceland's one to watch. I think they're, they're starting to stand by some quite interesting um, principles and defining their, their brand and their purpose in, in quite a strong way actually and I think they might be doing some interesting things over the next few years. And so to the co-op? Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. I think there's some interesting examples of people who passionately care about things. So this sort of unpackaged type approach to buying groceries. Um, obviously, plastic is a huge topic at the minute. So we've seen a few retailers opening up with just completely zero packaging. And um, there's one in Bristol. There's a few in Sweden. Um, some good examples of this type of thing. And I think there's learnings from those smaller independents that the supermarkets can bring in um, and can learn from. I just wonder what you all think the future of supermarket grocery retail will look like? How will it differ from what we have now? Connectivity, I think that's the thing for me. It's going to be how does it work uh, completely in harmony with the other channels? So you, the bricks and mortar, we know bricks and mortar is, is going to be here. Something like even now, generally I'm reading about 80% of purchases still done offline rather than online in the next few years at least. Um, but I do think the connectivity, if we're going right out there five to 10 years time, how does it work? How does it connect to uh, social media? How does it connect to online and then into physical uh, will be something which I'm sure that retailers are going to have to work a lot harder to, to make sure that it's not about silos working independently and promoting the same product. It's about a customer literally ducking and diving between the two or three or four channels and having some sort of narrative and dialogue and, and that content having to be driven by the, by the supermarkets. Sarah? I think it's interesting in terms of um, slightly more variety of format, um, maybe more brave and bold format. So not just the same cookie cutter um, approach to roll out, but actually more, more diversity in terms of um, formats and shapes and sizes and a response to local communities um, and local demographics. So maybe a more slightly more tailored approach rather than a sort of blanket approach to things. I think also in terms of the customer journey inside the supermarkets, I think there's a big opportunity there to create something more innovative and interesting and, and diverse. Um, when we look at our supermarkets today, it's quite a mono homogenized experience um, that all the aisles feel the same. Um, I think there's an opportunity there for more expression, more personality, uh, more diversity, not just in format, but also in experience. Oh, I think my prediction would probably be that the age of the supersized sheds is over. And I think the brands that still have them will gradually uh, retreat from those spaces. I think it's going to be uh, pretty hard to find some really um, jaw-dropping formulas of combining brands with other brands to make those spaces pay. And I think gradually, I think we're going to see a more human-scaled and probably more normal-scaled supermarket that we're more familiar with. Um, and all of that excess space will be chopped away simply because it won't be economic to run. Okay, well... Thank you all very much for helping us in our rethinking of the supermarket. Carl McKeever from Visual Thinking, Sarah Fairhurst from DL and Powell, and Michael Heenew from M Worldwide. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.
You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter, hashtag Retail Exchange. This episode is brought to you by retail transformation agency Visual Thinking in association with Retail Focus magazine. Thanks for listening.